I love this old Western movie. Gary Cooper plays this, this, this doctor, and he saves this man's life by taking the bullet out in that clip that you just saw. And the man says, you know, uh, if I'm going to be your assistant, how long do I need to serve you? He says, for the rest of your life, because this bullet would have taken your life. You know, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, how long do we serve him? For the rest of our life throughout all eternity. Why? Because he saved us. And so Christianity is based on a relationship. It's not based on rules. It's not based on regulations. It is based on relationship. There's a saying that I came up with. I don't know where it came from because I tried Googling it the other day and I couldn't even find it on the World Wide Web. What does that tell you? But it goes like this. Much love, little law. Much law, little love. I like how Josh McDowell said it. He said, rules, a relationship, <laughs> rules, okay, I better quote it from him directly. Rules without relationship will lead to rebellion. You know, as a parent, if you base your relationship with your kids solely on rules and not on relationship, it's going to produce rebellion. So a relationship can't be based on rules, but a relationship needs to have rules because every relationship has to have boundaries. If there are not boundaries in a relationship, that is an accident waiting to happen. So when it comes to our relationship with Christ, it's based on love. And it's because it's based on love, we don't need a lot of laws. Matter of fact, God really only has 10 holy commandments. Just 10. 10. So it's not based on a bunch of laws, a bunch of do's and don'ts and traditions and regulations and, and rules. But in our relationship with Christ, like any other relationship, there has to be some rules there has to be some boundaries. So we're studying in Acts 15, and where we left off a couple of a few weeks ago was a, a matter of great concern came to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem concerning the definition of salvation. <laughs> a lot was at stake here. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew before they become a, can become a Christian? In other words, do the Gentile men who were coming to faith in Christ, do they have to follow the law of Moses? In particular, do they have to be circumcised? Circumcision might be a good thing for health purposes, but it's not based on a, a requirement from the Old Testament law to be saved. So a lot was at stake here. Was it going to be by faith alone in Christ alone? Salvation, that is. Later on, Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works not of keeping of the law, not of circumcision, not of the feasts and the festivals that were required in the Old Testament, but by faith alone in Christ alone. So the elders and the apostles gather together in Jerusalem, and they have an important meeting, an important moment when they were going to reach consensus as to the direction of the church. So we're going to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 15, beginning now in verse 12. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood up and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. Stop there for a moment. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter was around lunchtime, he was up on the rooftop, and he fell into a trance, the Bible says. He had a vision. In this vision, God let down this white sheet filled with all types of unclean animals. And then a voice from heaven said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter was shocked and dismayed. He said, never, I've never eaten anything unclean. 
Peter had only eaten kosher his entire life. He had never had ham and bacon and sausage with three eggs over easy and hash browns and, and, and a pancake instead of toast. Amen. <laughs> and when God said, rise, kill, and eat, he said, I would never do that. And God said this. He said, do not call that which is un- that I've made clean unclean. He didn't know what that meant. But what happens next is he goes to a guy's house by the name of Cornelius who was a Gentile. He was not of Jewish descent. Peter is sharing Christ, preaching Christ, and we studied this when we were in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. And while Peter's speaking, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saved instantaneously. Then they are filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 10, 46, 47, 48, and they begin to speak in other tongues, magnify God as, uh, as God gave them that, that gift of, of uh, prophetic gift, that spiritual gift. And Peter and the other Christian Messianic Jews, as we would call them today, all the Jewish guys that were there with Peter who were now Christians were stunned that these Gentiles were able to be saved and filled with the Spirit without water baptism or without circumcision, without the keeping of the law of Moses. And that experience was an eye-opening experience for Peter. So as we studied three weeks ago, that was Peter's defense concerning this important issue. Do Gentiles need to become Jews before they become Christians? Peter said, here's my experience. Peter shared his experience. And experience is good, but it's not the final authority. Scripture has to be the final authority. So this is James talking, one of the apostles. As Peter told you about the time that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Now what James is going to do, he's going to quote from the prophet Amos. Chapter 9 of the prophet Amos. Now James is going to base the important theological decision that's about to be made, not purely on experience, but on the Word of God. You see, when it comes to great theological issues, we cannot base what we believe and what we practice solely on experience alone. We must base what we believe and what we practice and what we teach based on what is revealed already by God in the Holy Scripture. So he continues uh, in verse 16. He's quoting now Amos the prophet. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. Why? So this is the Lord talking. So that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. Ah, so even way back in the Old Testament, God had a heart for all of humanity, not just for the Jews to be saved. Now, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be saved and you were a Gentile, anyone who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile, you would have to become a Jew, follow the Jewish customs and laws, and then you would be in right standing with God, but no longer, because Christ has now come. All those that I have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago And now James is talking again. And so, my judgment is that we should not make it. I love this. This is James. You know, he's the guy that wrote the book of James. If any lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely. He had a lot of wisdom. I love what he says here. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I have a question for us today. Are we, does Trinity, the church in general in Lubbock, in our community or in our nation around the world, are we making it difficult for the unsaved to turn to God and come to know Christ? Do we have so many loops that they have to jump through, so many standards and regulations that they have to follow before they can be 
saved? Are we making it difficult for those who are turning to God? You know, those of you that are in the medical field, those of you that are doctors or surgeons, you know, uh, if you ever worked in an emergency room, you know that there's a practice or a procedure known as triage. And it's a medical term that basically prioritizes the patients that come in. You know, the, the guy that comes in that, that has a cough and a headache, uh, he's, he's gonna, it's going to probably take about eight hours before he sees one of the doctors, right? Uh, but the guy that comes in or the gal that comes in, you know, like with a gunshot or a stab wound, I mean, they prioritize the cases based on the most immediate need. Well, there's what is called theological triage. We need to prioritize what we believe. I love what St. Augustine said, uh, a famous quote that's attributed to him. In the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. But in all things, we have to show charity. In all things, we have to walk in love with one another. But when it comes to the essentials, theological triage, when it comes to the essentials, we better have some unity. We better believe the same thing together. And so what are some of the essentials, the non-negotiables in our faith? that we, if we call ourselves Christians, must believe in. How about the Holy Trinity? You know, God, the Lord our God is one, as it says in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but God is manifest in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all co-equal, all co-eternal. The Holy Trinity, we must embrace that. And all Christians, both on on the Catholic side of Christianity or the Protestant side of Christianity, we all agree and believe in what Scripture teaches concerning the Holy Trinity. In those essentials, we have to have unity if we're going to be Christians. When it comes to the deity of Jesus Christ, we have to have, there's, that's a non-negotiable, we have to have unity. Christ was God in human form, period. The, the incarnation of Christ, God in human form. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. We have to believe in the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and that Mary was a virgin when she conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to the Savior of the world. We have to have unity around that. It's a non-negotiable. If you're going to be a Christian, we ha- that's one of the essentials. The death of Christ, that he died a physical death and was physically raised gloriously from the dead on the third day, we have to have unity about that. You see, there are cults and false religions that do not believe or embrace those important doctrines of the church. Mormons are wonderful people kind people, good people, moral people, but they're not saved because they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They have their own book called the Book of Mormon. They don't believe that Jesus, they say, well, he's the Son of God, and they call themselves Christians, and I know they mean well, and I know they're good people, and you may be a Mormon here today, and we're so glad you're here, but please investigate the claims of your religion. Dig down deep, and you'll find out that they don't believe that Jesus was God in human form. He was the Son of God, but not God. They don't believe that He died a physical death, that He was physically raised from the dead. They don't believe the important non-negotiable essentials of our faith, nor do Jehovah Witnesses and many other false religions. You see, theological triage, these are the things that we, these are the hills that we must be willing to die on. There are some other issues that are non-negotiable that we as Christ followers must unite around. And these are not political issues. These are moral, theological, spiritual issues, issues, such as the sanctity of human life. That all life is sacred from the conception of life in a mother's womb until the coffin. All of life should be protected and all of life should be celebrated because God's the giver of life. We must all agree on that. The sacredness of marriage. This is a non-negotiable. There is no such thing, my friend, as gay marriage. I know by a 5-4 vote on the Supreme Court, it was legalized in the United States of America, and I know that now it is the law of the land. 
But it doesn't matter what Supreme Courts decide. It doesn't matter what man or governments decide or even apostate churches might decide. There's only one definition for marriage that God gave us in the book of Genesis supported throughout the Holy Scripture between one man and one woman. These are the essentials that we must have unity around. You say, well, I'm here today and I'm, I'm, in, a les- I'm in a homosexual relationship and we are legally married. I'm glad you're here. I mean, I love you. God loves you. But you must know that that union is not accepted by God. Listen, there might be certain things I would like to do as a man that God condemns clearly in Scripture. And if I'm going to follow Christ, I have to repent of such sins. I have to denounce such sins. And I have to reject such sins in my life. It's no different for you. If you choose to follow Christ, you must obey Him because you love Him and because you know that He loves you. The third thing that is a non-negotiable is religious freedom. Everyone should have the right to worship whatever God they choose to, to worship. I hope you would worship the one and only true God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I can't mandate that. I can't make you, nor should a government ever make another human being worship other than what their own conscience dictates. These are the, non, these are the essentials, the non-negotiables that we must have unity around. There's a story of a man who was on a trip, and he was walking, and he met up to another guy that was carrying a Bible. And he was so excited, he thought, well, I'm, I'm about to meet a, a fellow Christian. So the guy that met the guy that was carrying the Bible, he said, are you a believer? And the man carrying the Bible said, yes, I am. He, then he began with some rapid-fire questions. He said, do you believe in the virgin birth? The man said, yes. Do you believe in the deity of Jesus? The man said, yes. Do you believe in the death of Christ on the cross? The man said, yes. Do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus? The man said, I do. Do you believe in the human condition of man is sinful in need of a Savior that can only be saved by grace? And the man carrying the Bible said, absolutely. And the man asking the questions was just so overjoyed. said, oh, you really must be a Christian. He said, but I have a few more questions for you. Do you believe in the visible, literal return of Jesus? He said, yes. He said, do you believe in the Bible that is the inspired and errant and authoritative word of Almighty God? He said, yes. Do you believe in the church, the body of Christ? And the man said, 100%. He said, are you conservative or liberal? The man said, conservative. And the man's heart began to beat faster. He said, your religious heritage, are you Southern Congregationalist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationalist, Triune Convention? And the man said, yes, I am. He said, which branch? Premillennial, post-trib. He said, post-trib. He said, oh, do you believe in King James only? He said, yes. Do you believe in communion every Sunday? And the man said, yes. And he began to cry. He said, oh, you must be a true believer, but I have one more question for you. He said, what's that? Does your pastor preach from a wooden pulpit or from a plexiglass pulpit? And the man said, from a plexiglass pulpit. He said, you heretic, I'll have nothing to do with you. You see, we have to make sure that we major on the majors and not on the minors. We, Jesus said, you swallow uh, the camel and strain out the gnat. We have to make sure that we major on the majors and not major on the minors. So many churches major on the minors, and then they minor on the majors. We need to make sure that we have it right. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Much love, little law. Much law, little love. But in our relationship with Christ, because all relationships have to have boundaries, there are some rules But we don't want to make it difficult for people who want to turn to God and give their life to Christ. So let's go back to Acts 15, verse 19. The latter part of that verse will pick up. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from, here are some of the rules. 
eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat, stra- uh, meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So here James is saying, here are some of the rules. Here are some of the things that we should instruct. Here's what's amazing. James doesn't even address the issue at hand, circumcision. He completely bypasses that, circumvents that. And James, in his godly wisdom, he says, here are the few rules that we need to make sure that Gentiles who are now becoming Christians, that they practice. So what truths do we hold to? I want to give you three. First of all, Grace-oriented living requires us not to insist on non-biblical standards. If, if, if we're going to be grace-oriented and not legalists, not Pharisees, not law-based Christians, but grace-oriented followers of Jesus Christ, it requires us not to insist on non-biblical standards. You see there, it's what's called secondary cultural traditions. And based on your culture, you have the right to express your faith and live out your faith according to those what are called secondary cultural traditions. In other words, Gentiles don't have to live like Jews, and Jews don't have to live like Gentiles. If a Jewish person who's now become a believer in Christ and has been born again still wants to keep and worship on Saturday, that's their prerogative. They don't have to, but if they choose to, that's their prerogative. But they shouldn't make everyone else worship on Saturday because the Jewish Sabbath used to be on Saturday. Christians started worshiping on Sunday because that was the first day of the week. That's the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the day of the day of Pentecost was on the first day of the week. And so Christians primarily worship on Sunday. But if you choose to worship any other day of the week, that's fine. Paul talks about that in the book of Colossians. Okay. So these are secondary traditional cultural issues. Uh, if a Gentile gets saved and now, is now born again and is a Christian, a Jew is now born again and is a Christian, they're Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're, they're family. But if, if a Gentile doesn't want to have, doesn't, doesn't, is not forced to eat kosher, If they choose to eat kosher, that's their choice, and they can do so. In other words, we cannot require people to live by non-biblical standards. If someone chooses not to eat meat for health reasons or even religious reasons, that's between them and God. You shouldn't expect everyone else to be a vegetarian. Or if you eat meat, you shouldn't expect everyone else to to eat meat. We cannot enforce non-biblical standards if we're going to live grace-oriented lives. Number two. Certain matters should be left to individual conscience. Certain matters uh, should be left to your individual conscience. Should a Christian have a tattoo or not? That's that's between you and God. You know, uh, should a woman wear yoga pants outside of a gym? That's that's between you and God. I I can't find Scripture that says, thou shalt not wear yoga pants (laughs) out in public. We were in Denver. Every woman in Denver wears yoga pants. Everywhere you go, they're in yoga pants. Yoga pants. I'm tired of yoga pants. (laughs) <laughs> but some things are, are left to individual conscience, right? You, you can't mention, should, should a Christian play games of chance? That's between you and God, right? Should a, can a Christian drink a glass of wine or have a beer, you know, some casual drinking now and then? You know, the Bible doesn't condemn all alcohol, but it does condemn drunkenness. It says, no drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But just the same Bible that condemns drunkenness condemns gluttony. Should a Christian eat? Well, I hope you do. Just if you eat more than you should, that's a sin. Gluttony's a sin. Food's not a sin. We like to call certain things sin, but we can't call something sin that God hasn't called sin. 
But anything taken to an extreme can become a sin because then you become a slave to anything that might be good. It, when it controls you, it has become a god. And thou shalt have no other gods before him. But we're not legalists, and we're not Judaizers, and we're not Pharisees, and we have to major on the majors and not on the minors. Some churches don't let women wear pants, or some churches, you know, uh, don't let them put fingernail polish on, and just all kinds of ridiculous. Now, if you choose to do that between your own personal conviction with Christ, more power to you. But don't make others do it against their conscience, because we are living a grace-oriented life. There's a story of a family that went by the, the beach for a day, a family day together. Uh, none of them knew how to swim. Why they would do that, I don't know. But one of the boys was in the water and, and got too far in the water, and the current took him away. Another man, stand, a standby man, uh, observed what was going on and went to the rescue of this child, swam out there at his own risk, and saved the child and brought the child back safely to his mother. And when the, and when the, the, the man presented the boy that was going to surely drown if he had not saved him back to the mother, the mother said, when he went out in the water, he had a baseball cap. Where is it? <laughs> really? You're concerned about his baseball cap? See, the point of that story is we have to make sure that we major on what is really important. Keep our eye on the ball and, and make sure that we have, we, we have a healthy perspective. We have a big picture of what it means. In the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have to have liberty. But in all things, we have to show uh, charity with one another. And the third thought is this, finally, as grace-filled Christ, but we're not done yet with the message, <laughs> just these points. Uh, as grace-filled Christ followers, we voluntarily, look at that, we voluntarily limit our freedom in Christ for the benefit of others. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13. So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Paul said, I'm concerned about you, so if my freedom, my freedom in Christ that we all have, if my freedom in Christ is hindering your walk, is hindering your faith, and he gives the example of eating meat, then I won't eat meat because what's more important than meat is you in your walk with Christ, in your faith not being weakened, your conscience not being damaged. He goes on further in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Even though I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. See, some of these Jewish laws or some of these Gentile practices, they're okay for me, Paul is saying, to participate in. But I will never violate the law of God. In other words, I won't fornicate like the rest of the world that I might win some to Christ, or I won't get drunk like the rest of the world that I might win some to Christ. There are once again boundaries but Paul said the goal is winning people to Christ. Sometimes our goal is winning a theological argument. If it's not an essential of the faith, it's a non-essential of the faith. We need to have liberty and freedom and let, either, let other people live out their own personal conscience in Christ. So it continues now in verse 22 of Acts 15. 
And then the apostles and elders together <clears throat> with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. And they came to this decision without a vote, by the way. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders. Your brothers in Jerusalem, it is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, not by a vote, but by the Holy Spirit, we've come to complete agreement to send you official representatives. Along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Relationships aren't based on rules, but all, relationship need, all relationships need to have some rules because a relationship without rules has no boundaries, and it's an accident waiting to happen. So what are those rules? You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. So here's what's interesting. James basically says, I want you to stay clean from these three things. These three things. Number one, stay away from vile idols. Stay away from idolatry. Idolatry is rampant in our country and around the world, but particularly in our country. What is idolatry? It's image worship or divine honor bestowed upon creation or any person, place, or thing. Anything that we revere and honor more than God is an idol in our life. A good thing can become a God thing like that in all of our lives. It can be any person, place, or thing. It can be creation itself. Anything that we put above God or takes the place of God is an idol in our lives. John one of the apostles in one of his last letters, 1 John chapter 5, he ends that letter in the fifth chapter by saying, abstain from idols. Abstain from idols. The second practical thing that he tells us here is the consumption of blood. Now, we don't really understand this 2,000 years later, far removed from Jewish culture and the pagan times of the early church here in Western culture that's been Christianized uh, for so many centuries, really, um, starting, in, of course, in Europe. Of course, now Christianity is dying. We're in a post-Christian era. I understand that. But we don't really understand the consumption of blood. But there are, there are false religions and cults today that still practice the consumption of blood. Satanism, one of their rituals is to drink blood, whether animal blood or human blood. Um, those that practice voodoo uh, consume animal and or even human blood. 
And here's what God says. He condemns that because in, Genesis, in Leviticus 17, 11, it says the life of the flesh is in the blood. You see, all that Satan does is either a counterfeit or in mockery of God, what God has done. And what is precious? The Bible calls something very precious. What does the Bible call precious? The blood of Jesus. For you've been redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. His blood shed on Calvary was the giving of his life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You're alive today because your heart's pumping blood. And when the blood stops flowing, you're dead. So here's what you have to understand. Right after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God introduced the eating of animals right after the flood. He made it, he authorized the eating of animals, but because we even respect the animals that we slaughter and consume for our nourishment and for our well-being and our, the sustaining of our life, we still have to respect the life of that animal. So when an animal is to be slaughtered or killed, the, the blood is to be drained, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and then the meat can be consumed. We're not like animals. Animals consume their prey and eat the blood and the flesh. We're not animals. We're humans, created in the likeness of God. So God made some stipulation. Now, what you, can't, what you can't say from this is, what you can't make biblical is it's unbiblical to eat your steak rare. Sometimes I go to dinner with people, you know, and we'll order steak, and I kinda, I'm a medium well kind of guy. I've kind of moved to medium plus o- over the last couple of years. But when I'm sitting next to somebody and they say, how do you want your steak? And they go, rare. I'm like, I'm like, and then they bring that piece of meat out. And I'm like, you know, how can they eat that? I wish I could say, thou shalt not eat rare meat, because the Bible says, thou shalt not consume blood. Hey, listen, if you want to eat blood sausage, uh, on the Italian side of my family, my, my, my Italian aunt, her husband, who happened to be Polish, he loved her blood sausage. And if you want to eat blood sausage, that's your business. I think my uncle died at 59, but anyway, he, uh, he died happy. Right? <laughs> so. But this restriction is based on the ritual or religious misuse of the life of the flesh, which is blood. And the third thing that he says you're to stay away from, and we can all understand this, is sexual immorality. All sex, all sexual immorality is clearly condemned in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. What does that mean, Pastor Carl? In a practical sense, it means this. Any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage relationship between one man and one woman, as God has defined marriage, any sex outside of a marriage union is clearly condemned in Scripture. That would include pornography, that would include strip clubs, that would include all types of sexual immorality that would fall under that category. Because God's a God of love, because He loves you, because He wants to protect you, because God knows the wages of sin is death, He has established a few rules. He has the right to do that. He made you. He made me. He knows what's best for you. He cares about your soul and the well-being of your soul, and He cares about your future, and He cares about your eternity. And because he's a loving God, he has a few rules. Much love, little law. But the little law is these three things that are reiterated by James. The last one here is sexual sin. Now, I'm not naive. I know there are people struggling with sexual sin. Maybe you're struggling with the sin of homosexuality or a heterosexual fornication or adultery. 
I don't condemn you. I don't shame you. I'm glad you're in church. There's a part of you that says, I love God and I want to serve God, but I've got weaknesses. I've got struggles. Well, who doesn't? Welcome to the human race. But God is bigger and he loves you and he can provide a way out of temptation. And whatever you're struggling with, if you surrender it to God, if you quit trying to rationalize it and justify it in your life and call it what God, what God has called it, call it what Scripture calls it as sin and repent of it, God can help you because he loves you. And his arm is not too short to save and to deliver. So I'm not casting stones at you. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and you know what your struggles are. And I'm telling you there's a way out. There's a better way. And all of us have to come to that place in our life if we're going to follow Christ and we have to obey him, not out of fear but out of love. And I simply, as a pastor who cares about you, I want to encourage you to fear the Lord. Yeah, but Pastor Carl, you, you know, you're not single, you're married. You, you don't know how hard it is to be a single. I, I used to be a single. I know how hard it is to be a single. Well, what, what encouragement do you have to us singles? Well, get married as fast as you can, you know? That's all I can say. <laughs> what do I do in the meantime? Take a lot of cold showers? I don't know, you know? Whatever works, my friend. But if you get too close to the edge, you're going to fall over. That's what I do know, you know? So the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's better to marry than to burn. Paul the apostle, who was a single guy, he said that it's better to marry than, than to burn. And I know you can't rush the process, and I know you have to wait on God's timing and wait, wait for the right person. And it's not going to be easy, but it is doable. Some of the greatest people who have ever lived were, were single men and women who lived a, a chaste life, who lived a godly life, and may God continue to give you the grace to do so. All right, so let's, uh, let's conclude now with uh, the last few verses, and we're going to wrap it up this morning. Verses 30 through 34. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. I love this. And there was great joy throughout the church that day. Why? All the men realized that weren't circumcised, phew, we don't have to be circumcised. As they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. I want to send you away this morning, today, with a blessing of peace, shalom. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. That when we live according to God's rules, and he doesn't have a lot of rules, because your relationship's not based, your faith is not based on rules. Christianity is based on a relationship. God loves us, and we love him. And because we love him, and we want peace in our lives, we want to obey his holy commandments. We can't do it on our own, so Christ comes to live in us and to live through us. But yes, you're going to have to work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. You're going to have to pray and read Scripture and say no to temptation and get around good godly friends and be in, place yourself in environments that don't tempt you and, and don't feed your weaknesses. Yes, there's the part that you and I play in all of this. And God can help you. No matter how deep in sin you may be, no matter what your addiction or struggle may be, there's always hope in Christ. So just like these believers were left with that blessing, if we could put that verse of Scripture back up, that final verse, just as they were left with blessing, 
I guess we can't put that final verse back up. <laughs> Moving right along. In verse 34, it says, Silas decided to stay there. And he decided to stay there because perhaps some further work needed to be done with those particular believers who were quite frankly overjoyed because of the outcome of the right decision that was made by the apostles and the elders that it will forever be by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ paid the price in full. He did it all. All we need to simply do is put our faith and trust in Him. Believe in Him and know that we are saved. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you and we say, Lord, help us to live free of sexual immorality. Help us, Lord, to understand what James said about the consumption of blood and the respect of life. Help us to cast down any idols that may be in our life and to love you solely and exclusively. And God, I pray that we would be grace-oriented, that we would be a grace-oriented church, that we would not make it difficult for people to come to know Christ here at Trinity, that we would not be a legalistic church, that we would voluntarily limit our own personal freedoms in Christ for the benefit of others, that, God, we would leave certain matters to individual conscience and not mandate non-biblical standards. Lord, help us to live a more grace-oriented life. And thank you for the biblical lesson that we all learn as we've been studying Acts chapter 15. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, <clears throat> if you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Christ, or maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. I want to lead you in a prayer. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That same Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9 says. So we're going to lead you in this prayer. We're all going to pray it out loud with you, but if you need to commit or rededicate your life to Christ, I want you to say this prayer. I want you to say it with your own mouth, and I, but more importantly, I want you to mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life from this day forward throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?